Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Nat. I'm here with my brother, John, my co-hostess with the mostest. I said co-hostess. You like that, John? Say hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> this is uh, the, the podcast we've been doing for a little over a year now, right? Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. This is uh, what we call This Is Not Church. And uh, if you've been with us any length of time, you know that we, we mean that kind of tongue-in-cheek because very often what happens within these spaces um, is very much church as I envision it. It's people sitting across from each other, having a conversation, being willing to talk about sometimes uncomfortable things um, in order to find some understanding, some some place where we can connect. And so I love that. That that feels very much like church to me. Certainly more like more like church than some of the places I've been and, and situations I've found myself in. So Welcome to the podcast. You are amongst friends. We're glad that you're here. We have an awesome guest with us today. Uh, let me take a second and introduce him. I'll read you a quick bio, which will in, in no way capture, I'm sure, everything there is to know, but it will get us a, a good jumping off point to, to get to know him. So this is a Willie Dwayne Francois III. He has his uh, D-men from, Chan- from Candler. I already, I already messed this up, John. Not Chandler. From the Candler School of Theology. He's a senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey and the president of the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. He serves as as an assistant professor of liberation theology at New York Theological Seminary and directs a master's degree program at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. He created the Public Love Organization and Training, I'm sorry, Organizing and Training, PLOT Project, and has served in various organizations engaging racial justice issues, including the Atlantic City Chapter of Black Lives Matter, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, and the New Jersey Department of State's MLK Junior Commission. Francois is an active speaker and has written for the Huff Post, Sojourners, The Hill, The Christian Century, and Religion Dispatches. Man, that's a that's a heck of a resume, man. Welcome to the uh, to the podcast. How are you today, sir? Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, excited about this conversation. All right, I'm going to ask you the question I always ask people who look like they're about 20. How, how, how really? How have you done all this in in, in your 20 in your 20 short years? I mean, it's, no. If you guys well, can't see this video, you wouldn't know. This man looks like he just graduated college, man. 35. I'm actually 35. 30, okay, fine. 35 still seems like young as heck to me to have have all these accolades and accomplishments, but that's that's cool. <laughs> It's 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 been uh it's it's been a journey of of hard work and uh, a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm just grateful that it's uh been an opportunity to experiment uh, with life, to fail a lot, uh, and succeed along the way too. Sometimes. Well, if, if you couldn't already tell, that I was just an overt attempt at flattery. So, um, <laughs> just, you know, if I, I, I won't be able to engage you on an intellectual level, I could at least flatter you until um, and, and into thinking we're, we're cool. So, John mentioned before we got up that we started recording that we, we like to ask all of our guests to kind of give us a, a little bio of their own sort of a faith bio. We don't consider ourselves a faith based. I guess that's just a weird term. I get, but sort of faithocentric. <laughs> we do tend to deal with issues of faith as it relates to all kinds of other stuff. So I just coined the new term, John, faithocentric. Faithocentric. Right. I like it. I like it. The world's first faithocentric podcast. So <laughs> anyway, if you're comfortable, just kind of give us an overview. Let us, you know, in, in as much detail or, or as little as you want to, kind of what, what brought you to where you are today. Sure. So I, I started life in Galveston, Texas. Uh, and uh, there. Uh, really nurtured by a tight-knit family, <clears throat> single mother, 
uh, younger sister, and these incredibly present uh, grandparents uh, and, 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 and an aunt, my mother's uh, sister, my maternal grandparents, uh, and, and my mother's sister, uh, really are the are like the infrastructure of, of my faith journey uh, because I spent every weekend from probably the time I was five until maybe 16 uh, at my grandparents' house on the weekend, maybe even older than, than 16. And the, the rule of the house is if you stay here over the weekend, you have to go to church uh, in the morning, right? Uh, and going to church uh, in the 90s meant Sunday school, uh, maybe two regular services, uh, some sort of Baptist training unit uh, in the evening, maybe uh, an afternoon service in between the last service and and uh, Baptist training uh, unit. So I was nurtured by the, the faithfulness of my grandparents, uh, the deep spirituality of, of my grandmother, particularly, um, uh, who, who's now in sainted memory. Uh, but but also this 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 vibrant faith community called First Union Baptist Church of, of Galveston. And so they were a part of my own formation as a spiritual being or, or as a human trying to figure out what it means to be a better human. Uh, but also they were a collective part of my, my discernment to go into, into pastoral ministry. Uh, so uh, so those are the that, that Galveston experience is is foundational for how I came uh, to to sort of develop and, and flex my own spiritual muscles. And then in college uh, at, at Morehouse College in, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, I, I become radicalized. Uh, you know, in the sense of I, I think about Jesus in very political ways. I started to think about the 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 ways that you cannot disentangle spiritual, the spiritual and, and the political. Uh, and so that comes from uh, that Morehouse experience uh, that was, you know, uh, you know, that helped shape Dr. King. Uh, you know, a lot of that still lives uh, in that campus on those classrooms. And so I think those two places were most formative for, for how I understand faith, how I understand uh, spirituality and humanity to be uh, intimately tied together. Uh, but how I understand uh, Jesus to be fundamentally committed to projects of justice uh, and human dignity. Okay, a hundred different jumping off points there. So <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> how to how to wrangle those? I, I do find it interesting that in my circles of predominantly white evangelical Christians, it seems like they would very, very much like. And again, I'm, I'll paint with broad brushes when it suits me, but I, I understand I'm painting with a broad brush. But I do, I do see a, a tendency to want to divorce Jesus from social justice, to want to say, well, no, 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 I'm not a social justice warrior. And they sort of use that as pejorative, right? We're going to put down these all oh, bunch of, you know, just a bunch of social justice warriors, as though Jesus was not interested in social justice, simply because he didn't go out and necessarily tilt at windmills. He didn't tilt you know, he didn't come out and openly critique the Roman Empire, for example, until they say, well, Jesus isn't interested in that. I don't see it that way. John Dominic Crossan came on the program not too long ago and really schooled us on the nonviolent resistance of Jesus and how he, he saw him that way. And so talk to us a little bit about, about that, about Jesus' commitment to social justice, even though it might look different from what we would perceive as an overt commitment to social justice. Yeah, I think about Jesus as an abolitionist, uh, prim primarily because Jesus' first public sermon 
uh, is drawn from his ancestral tradition of Isaiah. And of all the words he could choose from Isaiah, in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 18, he draws on the words where, where Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me uh, to declare good news to the poor, to set the captive free, uh, recovery of sight to the blind, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which we know is the Jewish concept of Jubilee, which is about the restoration of land, the freeing of slaves, and the forgiveness forgiveness of debt, right? Like Jesus decides to introduce himself <clears throat> beyond uh, what they knew him as a carpenter, as, as Mary and Joseph's son. And he decides to take one of the most radical liberationist texts of all and then sits down and says, all of that I've read has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the manifestation of this political way of spirit freeing people from these deep and chronic forms of, of oppression. That, that's how Jesus jumps off, right? And you can't, you have to take that seriously. The other piece is, is that Jesus is formed in a, in an ancient religious tradition, Judaism, that actually, that actually names as one of its most, uh, one of its most memorable moments is the Exodus, which we know the Exodus is a political event where literally the deity of, 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 of Judaism, uh, Yahweh, frees slaves from a foreign power that has exploited their, their, their labor, right? So Jesus is nurtured by a spiritual tradition that starts with a political event. And then you see all of the healings and, and, and the other miracles that have serious economic and social implications connected to them. You know, maybe I'm biased, but, but that's how I read Jesus. Yeah. Well, I, I was, I, you, you segued exactly into where my mind was going because I've always, I've always started, I've, I've tended to look at the healing miracles of Jesus as less about physical healing and more about equity, more about economic restoration. It's about taking somebody who has been relegated to the sidelines, excluded from temple life, and all of a sudden they're healed and they're whole and they can reintegrate back into society, right? Um, physical healing was great, but everything that accompanied that, I would think, I would argue is even greater, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, the way I see it is that every miracle that we see Jesus perform from feeding mm -hmm. to recovering, uh, restoring a vision, all of these have, have, have political implications. One, we know that people who were beggars, they lived on the outside of, of the flow of wealth and, and religious power of that time. And to have your sight restored, uh, to have your, your, uh, paralysis healed was now an opportunity for you to re-enter religious life. Uh, alongside other folks, because there are certain conditions that you could have that would deny you participation in in Jewish life, particularly in in temple and synagogue life. And so, at a base level, the miracles invite people into the flow and belonging of religious community, which we know was connected to power. Uh, the other piece is if I if if I'm blind, I can't work. Uh, I can't be a part of the workforce. I can't sustain myself through my labor. And so to have your sight restored was also a way of you re-entering the workforce, uh, which we know was a predatory workforce at the time. Uh, what, you know, sharecropping, uh, slavery, all of that's a part of the workforce. But at least you were able to make some kind of, 
of, of, of living uh, in that way. Uh, the, the woman uh, that has the, the issue of bleeding uh, for, for 12 years, she's legally excluded from from community life because of the stigmatization of her of her sickness. And so her being healed allows her to be included. This sense of equity uh, that, yeah. that she mentioned uh, is a part of all of the healings that Jesus does. Not to mention that Jesus is doing this teaching, this preaching, this healing uh, amongst the people that I name in this book that I draw from Obrey Hendricks, they were called the Amhat Arats. These were the people of the land. These were the poor folk. These were the ex- the exploited and, and these were the exploited folk uh, who lived on the underside of the Roman Empire, but also on the underside of, of temple life, although they were uh, practicing Jews, uh, ancient practicing Jews. And so Jesus does life with the poorest, the people who were abandoned, the people who were the descendants of those who were left behind during what the Bible talks about as Babylonian captivity. We always think about, you know, people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel who who go into Babylon, but we forget that there were scores of people who were left behind in Jerusalem to live amongst the ruins. Jesus is a, is a descendant of the people who were who were the who were the descendants of people who were left behind and that's who Jesus does ministry among mostly. Wow, and then you know the other thing that that strikes and then I'm going to I'm going to kick it over to John. I don't want to dominate here but <laughs> sorry, questions keep popping. Is that's is fine. then so you couple you couple I think you know the gospels are very are very strategic about the miracles of Jesus they include. Um could have included thousands of them, right? I think they're very strategic about the ones they do. I think they send a specific message. But then there are people to whom Jesus comes to their aid and their defense. And this is where I think Jesus really blurs gender, ethnicity lines, all kinds of stuff. I mean, he names the Good Samaritan as as the, as the one who is a true neighbor. He comes to the aid of the woman caught in adultery, uh, speaks with the woman at the well, another Samaritan, again, blurring these ethnic divisions that say these people are less than and we don't have anything to do with them. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there having a conversation with them, obviously coming to the defense of the woman who who everybody, you know, the Pharisees would like to stone. So again, I, to me, that's another layer then of Jesus. And obviously, the, you know, I, I, the, the obvious point that Jesus appears post-resurrection first to women who are among the most marginalized people in the ancient world just speaks to me about his commitment to elevating those people, right? I mean... What's your take on that? What do you think? Yeah, I think so. The, the one question, the one moment in the Jesus canon uh, that 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 gives me pause uh, because it doesn't seem to represent the rest of what Jesus gives is actually that 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 Canaanite mother, or right. uh, as some traditions call the Syrophoenician mother that Jesus says, no, I came here for the children of Israel. I didn't come here for you. It seems like Jesus is making an ethnic argument uh, yeah. that's flawed. But what I love about that moment is that Jesus shows us that he's teachable because the same woman that he says no to convinces him and, and right. then he says, I've not seen greater faith than this. Like So Jesus shows us you know, in addition to all you name, Jesus also shows us what it means to catch your own blind spots, uh, to, to, to make racial and ethnic faux pas and then recover for them, uh, recover from them because you, 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 you actually allow yourself to be teachable, uh, in the, in, in the moment. And, you know, uh, that, that's what I hope silencing white noise uh, does. 
uh, is that it, 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 no, we won't be perfect racialized beings. There's no such thing. No, we won't ever get to the place where we're all anti-racist, but we at least allow ourselves to develop a posture of teachability, uh, that we allow, we allow ourselves like Jesus, uh, to make an ethnic racial faux pas and then learn from it and repair it in the moment. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad that we're 16 minutes into this discussion. We have yet to bring up the title. You're the first guy to bring up the title of your book. I'm so sorry. No, no, you <laughs> it, it usually finds its way into a bio and I didn't read it. By the way, our guest has written an amazing book called Silencing White Noise. You just heard him reference it. I didn't want it to be out of context. What is that about? Uh, so this is, a, this is, this is a Mr. Francois. His, his, his new book called Silencing White Noise, Six Practices to Overcome Our Inaction on Race. And uh, we're going to talk about that, I hope, a great deal, get get into some of the meat of that. But John, I cut you off and I won't do that again for another 10 minutes. I'll, I'll let you go. But <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to, I was just going to, I was going to try to move it forward into uh, a, a more of a connection to the book, which is this, this idea, like Nat said, that uh, specifically in the white evangelical church that we try to depoliticize Jesus, make him not somebody who was, who was trying to undermine a political system. And we'll say things like he was the Prince of Peace. He wasn't there to cause any disruption. But like Nat said, this idea of nonviolent resistance is different than this idea of someone being pacifist, right? So, and then we, and for anybody who thinks that uh, we, we don't understand that or don't, don't see how that works. All we got to do is go to Martin Luther King, right? And say, okay, here's another guy. He wasn't, he wasn't a pacifist. He was someone who was speaking out about nonviolent resistance. And what did specifically white America think of him? He was, um, he was a pariah. He was, he was undermining our faith. He was undermining America. He was undermining everything that made, that made this country what it was or what it is, right? And so for us to look at Jesus and say, uh, he wasn't really that political, but then look at someone like Martin Luther King who was doing pretty much the same thing with this nonviolent resistance, which is, for those of you who don't understand, is so much different. It's such a different idea than this idea of being pacifist, right? Like just standing down and saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight back. That's not what this is. It's, it's definitely fighting back. It's definitely holding people accountable through a nonviolent resistant force. And it is a force. It was a force to be reckoned with. Um, and how do you see us move? And then as we move into this book, how do you see someone like Martin Luther King you know, opening up our eyes to racial issues um, and um, helping us? I, I don't want to say helping us because like as we look now, right? As we look back at Martin Luther King, specifically white, white people, we, we absolutely love to quote Martin Luther King, right? We always grab the same quotes. It seems like every Martin Luther King birthday, every Martin Luther King day, we, everyone grabs the same quotes, but he was way more radical than the quotes that most white evangelicals use for him, right? Does that make sense? No, it, it, it does. I, one thing is we have, um, time frozen Dr. King at the steps yeah. of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, right, right. uh, without fully accounting for how he transformed uh, yep. toward 19, 1968, where, right. you know, in 67, he says, I feel like I've integrated my people into a burning house. Uh, and, or, or, or uh, a Dr. King uh, who said, who's talking about being black and beautiful and, 
and talking about black power, right? Or, or a Dr. King that makes a, a case around reparations where he says, you know, when we were emancipated, we were freed to famine. We were freed to desolation. We were, we were freed to death. That is a radical Dr. King that doesn't really find its way into what I have experienced from white evangelicalism's veneration, a celebration of, 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 of Dr. King. And, you know, in, 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 in my book, I talk about, I talk about this as a form of colorblind Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the type of Christianity uh, that wants to always feign apolitical. Uh, a type of Christianity uh, that wants to act as if race does not exist, uh, a type of Christianity that centers whiteness and white people's experiences as normal, as 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 the template for what humanity right. should be and look like without ever using the language of, of race. We, we all know that we know how to talk about race uh, without talking about race. When we use right. words like ghetto, uh, words like right. urban, uh, even even words like criminality uh, and, and crime, that all of these, th- welfare, all of these things have racial undertones to the point that we know how, uh, I talk about this in the book, how we know how to talk about race without ever talking about race. And so what's interesting about this colorblind Christianity that we find in white evangelicalism is that even though it feigns a political, uh, as, as, as we can see, uh, due to recent, uh, recent history, recent turns of events, uh, there's a celebration of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, there's a celebration of the protection of gun rights. Uh, there is, uh, the, the celebration of now you know, religious schools can get public dollars, uh, even if they are segregated. Like that, all of that came out in one week of the Supreme Court. And most of those rulings benefit, uh, not, not benefit personally, but they speak to the, the, the stated political values of the religious, of the religious right. And so even when we think about those moments, that, that shows that it is a farce, uh, that, that white evangelicalism is, is not political. In fact, I think we would all say that it's probably the strongest political block in this, in this country, uh, save for the black vote. I think the black vote and the evangelical votes are, are the most dominant voting blocks that we can name, uh, in, 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 in our country. And so, yeah, I, I think that, that, that we have to name that, that kind of hypocrisy that exists within white evangelicalism. Uh, but, and, 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 and to be able to call that out as, as, as dangerous in a lot yeah. of ways, yeah. uh, to, to, to real life. Yeah. Well, because the, uh, the ultimate, the, the ultimate consequence of these rulings will fall disproportionately on black and brown folks. No question. I about mean, it. that's the one thing, that's the one thing that I keep hearing. I keep hearing these people parrot this garbage on, on the radio and stuff. And they're talking about, well, this is, you know, well, this is just, you know, overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. Um, if women still want to get abortions, they can go to another state and you should, if you don't understand then the financial implications of this, you don't understand the fact that you've just said, Oh, just, just go do this when that's not possible. And until they criminalize, by the way, the crossing of state lines to right. seek abortions, where the, which, which, is which is coming, which is coming, which Clarence Thomas has always signaled, already signaled he would he he would be, I think, for, um, as well as rolling back LGBTQ rights, rolling back other rights that have been hard fought and hard won because so many of them were sort of predicated on what Roe v. Wade was predicated on. But all of that being aside, the 
what what white folks like John and I and, and our colleagues um, need to understand is that where the consequences of this fall the hardest. And they fall on the people who are already sort of economically challenged. And they benefit, like you said, this voting block of the far right, which is, again, disproportionately white evangelical. So we're all, you know, I, I don't know, I've had to, I've had to turn off my Facebook for a few, just because of all of the gloating and the, you know, all of the people cheering for what they think they've just won, which I don't think they understand. They haven't, they haven't won anything, but. No, I mean, I think that's a great point. Uh, I mean, one, the question is like, what does this do to democracy? Uh, because yeah. it, we're actually saying an entire group of people should not have rights. Right. Should not have rights over their, over their body. Uh, like that, that is dangerous to democracy. Uh, in addition to it being violent towards women, and I think we need to hold that at the center. It is also destructive to democracy and it is anti-poor folk. And, and, you know, when you're anti-poor folk, you're, you're also anti-black, uh, anti, anti-brown in a lot of ways, anti-white. <clears throat> you know, I, I have, uh, <clears throat> I said over and over again, that we raise the question of, of Black Lives Matter, and we know uh, that that politically, uh, Black lives have meaning in this country that that's less than uh, than, than white folks. We, we know that, but I also ask the question of: Do all white lives matter to white people? Uh, and and I'm not really sure because so often you have the super rich who are white who are crushing uh, the, the poorest folk in this country, and many of them are white too. Uh, and, and, and it is because of this myth of whiteness <clears throat> that, that the super rich get off the hook. And you know, I talk about this in, in the book as well. But, but we don't talk about how these policies disproportionately impact black brown folk, but also how they disproportionately uh, impact poor white folk, particularly poor white girls and, and, and women. And uh, like there is this is not a victory uh, for, for, for the right. The way they think it is because of what this will do to the economic futures of so many white folks. Well, and then the rich white people, the people in power within the white, whatever you want to call them, have created this myth of whiteness, right? So that by creating this myth of whiteness and white and whiteness being the normal, the normative, that gives these poor white people some kind of what they perceive as power which they have completely bought into this, right? That they have, so what they can see and what they can look at is like, they can basically can say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm poor. I have a hard time, but at least I'm not them. Right. Yeah. And they, they feel like they're rich, white, whatever will somehow pull them out of their poverty, pull them out of their need for help because they're white. And whiteness is the normative, right? That's, that's what the Smith is, is that white, everything about whiteness is the normative, which everything else is, is, um, is, is compared to. And so they, they have 100% bought into this myth that at least I'm not black or brown. At least I'm not indigenous. At least I'm not, right? And that I, I have some kind of hope. And well, the other thing I was going to bring up uh, as I'm reading through your book is just like, and this is, this was, I guess I knew it, but it was just more shocking is just how, I'm going to say it, uh, every institution in this country is racist. It's built on racism. Every single one. And if you, and anyone wants to disagree with me, that's fine. But I'm telling you, every single institution in this country is built on racism. That being the banking system, the, the medical system, the hospital systems, policing, the church, 
every single institution in this country at its core is built on this idea of racism. And it's this unholy union between racism and what we think as white normative. And I, that's something that just like, I, I just saw over and over again in your book as you're, as you're writing this. And I was like, I had to come to groups with like, I'm, I, you know, I'm always looking for like one, one institution that maybe wasn't like this, right? And sadly, there just isn't one. There just isn't, not in this country. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, just speaking to the book again, you know, there's this section in the chapter where I talk about these, this political construction of whiteness. It is, it is, it is framed and, and traced all throughout our constitution, uh, where our constitution makes claims about what it means to be white while making claims about what it means to be uh, a, a citizen. And to, to be honest, yeah, the, 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 I can't think of an anti-racist American institution. Uh, and I think that's because of white noise. Uh, you know, these, these ideas, these practices, uh, the way we talk, uh, that, that, that protect, defend, and, and lengthen the life of, of white supremacy, uh, that, that we just have to contend with. That all of our institutions do this. And, and the fact of the matter is, is you don't have to be white to perpetuate white supremacy. I think, I think that is a part of the myth is that, that, that I'm very clear. White people are not the problem. Uh, because white people are people, therefore they have inherent dignity created in the, in the image of God. People are not the problem. It's, it's the idea, it's the way these ideas use us. It's, 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 it's the way white supremacy shapes and forms all of us because you can find anti-black, anti-brown, anti-indigenous sentiment in every community, right? That, that's the work, uh, that we have to repair. We have to repair the ways that, that, that racism lives in our institutions, no doubt, but also how racism lives in our bodies, in our minds, regardless of how we identify, identify racial. Well, yeah, it, I, the example that, you know, that was, uh, was told to me was not all police officers are racist, but they work in an institution that is formed and originating in a racist setting and it is never it is never acknowledged its racist history so then you move forward to George Floyd right where you see George Floyd being murdered by a cop and a cop of of a uh, of color not black but he's a, a you know a cop a police officer of color standing idly by because he he has bought into the system that his first and foremost thing to do is to protect the other officer protect the blue Right. Over the life of the person on the ground screaming for his mother, saying he can't breathe, and he's standing there, arms crossed, looking the other way. And you can't tell me that that institution isn't based in racism, even when you have police officers who are of color, but they, they are built into a system that at its core is racist. There's, there's no way around acknowledging the fact that racism impacts all of us. Uh, it makes some of us victims. It makes some of, some of us supposed victors. Uh, but, but, but racism does, and I just want to overstate this, that racism does inhabit black, brown, indigenous bodies too. Uh, that, 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 that's real. That it's, it's, we're soaking in it, right? Like, if, let's say we're fish. White supremacy is the water that we all live in. Whiteness is the water we all live in. And we don't, we don't 
escape it unless we're actively working against it. And that works for all communities, not just, not just white communities. But to your point about, about the police, we, we should never forget that policing starts in this country in Boston as a way of patrolling and controlling white folk, white immigrants who were, who were, uh, were said to be on the verge of destroying white property. That let's not forget that Irish folk were not always white <laughs> in this country. And, and the police in Boston were created to control white immigrants who were racialized as other than white because the idea of universal whiteness didn't exist uh, in the 1820s. That that's a development of the of the 20th century, uh, you know, of the of the late 19th, early 20th century. It just doesn't exist uh, in the way that we think it does. And we shouldn't forget that Europe colonized itself internally along the lines of race before it ever colonized uh, Africa along the lines of, of race. So even what we understand as white in this country has not always been white in this country. And so police in the North start as a way of protecting property from people who we would consider white, but were not yet considered white. And then policing in the South, particularly places like Charleston and, and New Orleans, the police force starts as the slave patrol system. So you have police that are created in the North to protect property from white, from, from poor white folk who were not considered white. And then you have policing in the South that was to protect property, also known as black people, uh, from escaping, from reading, uh, from gathering, from, from, from creating community. And then police force in the Midwest starts as patrol of Native American communities, indigenous communities. So policing in every sector of this country was created along the lines of race, not necessarily all anti-black, but definitely along the lines of race and also anti-poor. Right. And then you have that, you know, obviously Jim Crow kind of era laws and all this other stuff. But what's interesting to me about everything you just said, let me bring it back to a theological point then, um, because it seems to me, and I've made this point before with my congregation and stuff that, you know, that when Jesus, when Jesus critiques anything, he doesn't critique individuals, he critiques systems, right? So when he calls out the Pharisees for their, for their unjust treatment of the poor, for their commitment to themselves, over, he's not calling out, you know, Jeff, the Pharisee, <laughs> he's not calling out, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he does not, he look to me, it's, it's obvious that he's approaching this from a, Hey, this is a systemic problem. This is a problem with an ideology. It's a problem with an institution. And I think that gets lost sometimes when we talk about issues of race, because we want to go, we want, we want to talk about this one individual rather than see him as part of a system. Right. And so I, 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 I just think that's an interesting distinction to make that when we talk about this, that all these people we speak of are human beings, as you said, that they are image bearers, they, are, they, are, they have dignity, but they are a lot of them immersed in systems that are inherently racist. And, and they've got to reckon with that, right? At least I, I think so. No, I, I, I think you're right. So, one of, so a part of the playbook of, of whiteness is to convince us that racism is only individual. Uh, it, to, to convince us that the systemic and the structural aren't existing. And what does that do? That protects the system and the structure, right? If, if we right. only spend our time looking for tiki torch 
bearers, uh, people who are marching in Charlottesville saying uh, that the, down with the Jews, uh, the Jews will not replace us. Right. Uh, if, if you only think about racism as a U.S. president who calls uh, black nations uh, asshole nations, right? If, if we only think about racism in the individual terms, then we give a pass to the structural ways uh, that that racism continues to to impact to impact us on a structural level on how how I get loans, how college admissions work, how hiring happens, uh, wh- how schools are, are 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 funded. Right? If we don't think about the how our prisons are built and how the projection around the prison boom is connected to race and reading levels, right? If, if we don't have that structural analysis and we're only looking for individualized forms of racism, then we will never, we'll, we'll never be able to, to abolish and, and eradicate the system. Uh, you know, if you read throughout the book, you can also see that we actually don't need white people for white supremacy to be alive anymore because it is so baked into, uh, the, the, the structure, the logic, the language, the grammar. Of, of this nation that we don't need individual white people for us to, to, to be racist. Let me say this, let me say this last thing. <clears throat> and part of the dilemma, um, is, and I talk, I, I trace this in, in the book. There's a book called Divided by Faith. And I draw this from the book, cite this in the book, uh, in Silencing White Noise from, uh, Divided by Faith. And so the authors of Divided by Faith say that white evangelicalism does not, is not able to to see racism for what it really is because it has this cultural toolkit that 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 consists of three things one they call free will individualism which means everybody is responsible for their own decisions therefore we judge people based on individual decision right uh and and you your life is a result of what you do with your life, right? In free will individualism. Then the, what the authors call relationalism is that, that white evangelicals also say, if you're in the right relationship, then there's certain things you won't do, right? That, that you, the right relationship will shape how you use your free will. And the reason why black people go to jail uh, at, at disproportionate rates is because they're around, they're surrounded by the wrong people. Uh, they, 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 they're lazy. They have character issues, right? Is that, that what I talk about in one of the chapters? This sort of cultural, uh, this cultural identity, this cultural way of being colorblind racist is that we say, oh no, it's in the culture of blackness that they make these decisions. They, they don't have a strong work ethic. They're predisposed to criminal act activity, right? And it's all because of bad relationships. And then the third piece uh, they say in that book is we don't see structures. Everything is anti-structural. Uh, th- there are no systems and structures that shape how people function and move and act. And so there, so these authors say that there's something in evangelicalism itself that only sees the individual that does not believe in, in systems and structures that are harming people unless it harms them. Uh, you know, (laughs) you know, particularly one example of that would be how we talk about, um, how we, uh, talk about uh, affirmative action, right? That is a system that disproportionately discriminates against white men, particularly, right? But, but, you know, not seeing the 
only seeing the individual as the director of, of one's life. Naming bad relationships and bad cultural habits as really the problem and just this refusal to see how systems and structures work that they, they studied 2000 evangelicals and those were, were, were the themes that, that arose. Well, I don't know how familiar you are with Rene Girard, but everything, as soon as you started talking about this, I started thinking about Girard because his work on mimetic theory would say that all of that's bullshit. You know, like, like, like there's, like, there's no such thing as pure autonomy and pure free will that we're all, we're all influenced by myriads. I mean, just anyway, all kinds of things that come into play that, that factor into, you know, but it is an easy, and then the other part of Gerard that struck me is that, um, uh, he, he would, he was the one who, who speaks a lot about, about scapegoats. And so when you do have an individual who pops up and who was obviously racist and who obviously does something horrible that we can all agree on, you know, across party lines. Okay. That was bad. We can punish that guy, make an example of him and then feel like we did something about racism without actually digging into the uncomfortable things that would challenge structures that would challenge things that are more deeply held. And so it, it acts as like a, uh, sort of a, a, an ameliorative effect, you know, to go, well, okay, we fixed racism because we put that one guy in jail. Right. Hey, we finally put we finally put a bad cop in jail. Derek Chauvin was finally uh, a police officer was finally held accountable. The system worked. The system worked. Is racism solved? We can all go to bed tonight and sleep well. (laughs) But it's such it's just it's a cop out. Right. I mean, it's because as we're talking about structural things, as we're talking about, it's going to have we're going to have to go deeper, folks. I mean, we're going to have to look at these. At, John brought up a point of, a while back, and I don't know, remember where you read this, John, but there was a, a man who had his house appraised, right? And and he had it appraised by one appraiser. The appraiser comes in and appraises his house. Then he's told to remove anything in the house that might identify him as being black. And so he goes through and takes down family pictures, and he takes down certain you know things that he thought might give a clue. And all of a sudden the appraisal comes back like $15,000 higher or 20, you know, it was a, it was a good, good percentage higher when the person doing the appraisal thought that the home belonged to a white family. That's structural. That's something that you're going to have to weed out and, and, and reckon with because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be sort of subconscious. The person doing it's probably not overtly racist, but the, like you said, the, I, th- I like the, the term you use this, that white normative thing is so baked in we're swimming in a sea of white supremacy to the, to the point where we, we, we don't realize that's, that's, that's the, the, the environment we live in and it comes out of us whether we want to or not. But yeah, I mean, that, that, so Gerard to me speaks to this quite a bit. But. Well, it reminds me of the, the story that you have in the book and uh, it, it, it speaks to uh, upstream and downstream work, right? So it's the story of this, um, uh, this baby comes floating down the river and someone goes in and, and pulls out the baby and saves the baby. But the next day, two babies are coming down. So they go out and they save the two. And the next day, more and more and more. Finally, someone says, hey, why don't we go upstream and find out why all these babies are coming down <laughs> the river? Right, right. As opposed to just keep pulling them out of the river. Why don't we find out what the major problem is? And it seems like that's exactly, I mean, we, we want to fix these little issues so we can have our victories. So we can say, see, I'm not racist. Right. Because I, I, I helped do this. And so then, but we're not, we're not willing to take, do the work to look at in that at ourselves and see what kind of microaggressions we use on a daily basis that we aren't even, we don't even know is happening, right? 
And so in a lot of ways, and, and Nat's mentioned this before, a lot of ways, it's a lot easier to deal with people who have a white hood over their head because you know, I mean, when you walk up, you know exactly what you're expecting there. But these people who are using these subtle racist comments, microaggressions, those are the ones that you, you just don't know. You, you're walking into a system, you have no clue. Well, and I'm not sure they know because they would deny, they would deny from sunup till sundown that they are. And so they haven't even reckoned with the racism that they, that they themselves are, are exuding because they, they won't recognize it in themselves. They're so ant, they, they don't see it, right? And, uh, you, I know you deal with this in the book a little bit. Um, when, whenever I talk about issues of race with white folks, some of your, some of your chapter titles are just great because this, this is exactly the pushback. These are the, these are the, these are the knee jerk reactions you get from folks. It's as bad as I can't be racist. I have a black friend. Right. Um, right. it's, but it's, so let's talk about a couple of these because, you know, the gospel's colorblind, you know? Well, does, doesn't Paul tell us that in the kingdom, there's neither male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Aren't we supposed to be moving to a post-racial world where we no longer see these differences? So playing devil's advocate, why aren't we shooting for that? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think that's, a, that's a great question. And I think Paul speaks to an ideal, uh, but that ideal that Paul speaks to uh, you know, it has to also take into account the function of race and other narratives of difference. Uh, because right now it's not enough just to say we're all equal when we're, when certain communities live on the underside of power and, and privilege. And so I would love to say, you know, I would love to say we're all the same. Uh, but the reality is, is that we're not all the same. We may be created in oneness. Uh, as as a species of, of as as a creation humanity but the reality is is we don't have the same access to power we don't have the a same access to capital we don't have the same access to opportunity and that is because of what race actually means and so yeah i think there is an ideal that we should all be one uh, but that oneness is disrupted when we don't take seriously how our skin our flesh carries different meanings in different spaces. Uh, and sometimes that meaning can cost you your life. Sometimes right. that meaning can cost you your job. Sometimes that meaning can cost you uh, a, a place to live. And it's colorblind Christianity that wants to deny those differences and denying those differences uh, allows us to be, to, to, to feign ignorance or to live into the mythic innocence about a country uh, where all people are, are created equally. And we just know that, that that's not, that that's not, that's not true. Right. Well, what you said, one of your chapter titles re- reminded me of a conversation that we had. And um, I, I hope it was Lisa Sharon Harper, John, remind me if it was, but, um, talking about essentially recognizing oneness without conceding sameness, mm. without giving up our uniqueness, without, without saying, listen, we, we don't want to become one homogenous yeah. You know, species of people without distinguishing features and, and characteristics. And, um, so there's a best, and you make, you make that, that point in the book between oneness. Yes, we can recognize unity and, and, and I think we can find places of common ground and especially in places of dignity and access and things like that. But I would never want to lose my uniqueness, nor would I ever want you to lose yours. So when we, when we feign colorblindness, um, man, we do that to the detriment, I think, of of all the diversity that that exists, and suddenly everyone's just sort of painted in these really broad strokes, right? Right. I mean, that that, that first that first chapter of the book talks about cues to color, 
It talks about how we yeah. should see color. And, and, and because that color matters and that color means something for somebody's life outcomes. So we should see color and we should see color as uh, a, 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 a manifestation of the, of the diversities of the image of God is that the image of God is diverse within itself. And so what are we denying about God's nature when we deny uh, the color and what those colors mean uh, for, 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 for people, for people who are, who are not white. And I talk about color brown, color blind Christianity. Some of the features of it is that it denies the diversity of the image of God, the diversities of the image of God. Uh, it, it, it does not allow us to see racism as something that should be abolished because we can't see it as a system. It upholds the sin of whiteness or the sins of, of whiteness. Uh, it, 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 it exaggerates racial progress. Uh, it, it tells right. us, well, at, at least we're not having, at least you're not enslaved anymore, right? Well, at least we've taken down the signs. And yeah, we've taken down Jim Crow signs, but we still have Jim Crow economics, uh, because we integrate King again. We've integrated lunch counters that we can't afford to eat at in so many ways. Uh, and, and, and so I think, I think that, that, is a part of the problem of colorblindness is that it refuses to see color, which, which disallows us to fight the battle for racial abolition. Uh, but it also denies the diversity of God's image. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny to you, to you because you talk about, you know, the financial disparity of, of certain groups of people. And I'm, I'm actually reading, uh, Angela Davis's autobiography right now. Mm. And, uh, one of the things that she talks about in growing up is that, uh, she, you know, in the community that she lived in, the people that lived around her were so poor, they couldn't even go buy a bag of chips. Okay. So the reason I bring this up is because we have created a, 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 an institution within capitalism that the things that are healthy and good for us are expensive. It's so much easier to go buy off the dollar meal at McDonald's than it is to go to the organic store and buy yourself a few apples, bananas, uh, food that's supposedly healthy. And then, then we look, then we turn back and we see these groups of people of color who are affording what they can afford. And we're like, look at them. Look at, look at the crap they eat. They don't, they're not, they don't even have enough dignity to, to go and get like, you know, healthy food. It's because, well, they can't afford it. They just absolutely can't afford it. So yeah, they're gonna they're gonna go down to the the discount store. They're gonna go down to McDonald's. They're gonna buy a dollar hamburger. They're gonna buy a dollar bag of fries or whatever because they can afford it. And we don't give them the same. You know, we don't give them the same. But here we are as as white white Americans sitting down eating the same damn crap, but maybe at a higher place, right? We I don't go to McDonald's. I go to the burger joint down the street that happens to be locally owned and. I, it's organically grown, grass-fed beef, blah, blah, blah. But I'm eating the same right. shit that they're eating. I just get to say it's, it's, it's organic and better for me. And yeah. it's, it's, just, it's just so it's so blatantly racist when you step back and look at it. But when you're in it, you, you can, you know, I've done it. I, you know, I hate to admit, you know, my own racist, you know, responses to people when I see this, it's when you're built into it in the system, it's so easy to go, well, look at them. They're just being lazy. If they, 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 they just got a better job, 
if they just got, if they just made more money and you know, the whole idea, you know, just pull yourself up for your bootstraps, sure, which by sure. the way, which by the way, originated as something that you physically couldn't do. It wasn't supposed to be something that showed you how great you were. It was actually supposed to show you that it was something you physically can't do. Right. 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 But doesn't that just go to underscore how we've hyper individualized everything then? Right. Because now I can narrow it down. And, and I think that's a, if, if not the stated intention, it certainly is the result of this is where I can look at somebody who's in a disadvantaged situation and then I get to blame their poor choices on them. And I say, well, you know, yeah. you know, if, if you ate better as a, as a, as a people, you wouldn't have such as, you know, the high incidence of, of heart disease in the black community. Uh, maybe you just need to make better food choices, you know, and you can do the same thing with Roe v. Wade and, and say, well, all, all you have to do is not have sex. Right. And then you right. remove anything structural in that. You, you assume that every sexual encounter is consensual, um, that you, that everybody's on an even playing field and they've just made bad choices. And it just allows, it just allows such a binary way of thinking uh, that again allows people to feel superior to others. And they all, I made good choices, right? And, and that kind of logic denies that the body needs what it needs. Like we, we are sexual beings. The right. body, body is sexual. It's sensual. To sit, to just don't have sex is not, it's not as easy as certain religious communities would, would like it, would like us to believe it, it is. That, well, that's, no. a, that's an incredible discipline, uh, that, that few people have actually mastered, <laughs> right? And, and uh, so, I'd say very few. And, and some of them didn't really. They just decided to turn their attention to other people, but right. the, uh, Catholic Church. <laughs> um, but the, uh, <laughs> but if, if, if prohibition worked, we wouldn't have a drug problem because Nancy Reagan would have solved it in the 80s by just telling us to say no. And we're like, oh, no. shit, that's all I had to do was say no? Oh, well, dang, you know, pro- drug problem solved. Well, <laughs> right. then the sex problem solved too. Just say no, ladies. Just say no, men. <laughs> just just stop Just stop having the sex and you won't have an issue. It, it's such an in, it's such an infantilized view of people, mm-hmm. right? Where, it, where basically you can treat them all like children, just give them you know, guardrails to live by and suddenly everything's going to be solved. Um, and there's just, there's just no reality in any of it. But, um, the, the other part of your book, um, man, I could go on and on about your book. Um, so good, by the way. Oh, thanks. thanks. The other title I liked so much was that I'm having a conversation with one of my best friends and my associate pastor just this Sunday. So we're sitting around before church and we're going through a new series. And one of the, one of the weeks we're going to talk about is we're calling it uncomfortable. And it's just dear church to start learning how to deal with uncomfortable subjects. Let's, let's, let's stop shying away from things that make us go, ooh. And so, and we, we got onto this topic of race quite a bit. And, and one of the things that, that we hear quite a bit whenever we talk about this with any white folks in particular, and I'm thinking of friends in particular. So if you're listening, I'm talking about you, is when I talk about privilege ever, what do I get? Man, I've worked for everything I've got. Nothing was handed to me. I've had it hard. I didn't have any privilege to which you would say in your book, what? Well, I would say a, a, a couple of things. One, one is when we talk about when we talk about privilege, uh, we're also talking about what uh, W. E. B. Du Bois called a psychological wage. Uh, there, there's certain there's a certain uh, way of, of thinking about oneself and about the world. Uh, that, that non-white people just don't have access to. There's not a day that I, that I get to not think about my skin color when I walk down the street. There's not a day that I'm not in a vehicle and I don't, you know, fear that blue lights 
are going to stop me and that could be the end of my life. That is a kind of psychological privilege, a psychological wage, uh, as, as the voice would say. The wages of whiteness is that I get, to, you know, I think John said this earlier, that I get to say, well, at least I'm not that. At least I'm not black. At least right. I'm not, I'm not an immigrant. At least I'm not this. That is a wage. That's a privilege, uh, right. that, 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 that our white sisters and brothers have. Uh, you know, white privilege also means that I'm seated in particular, uh, you know, I, it is assumed that I worked for everything I have. And, you know, I went to Harvard and I can't imagine how many of my white friends, um, you know, I call them friends, how many of my white friends, <laughs> you know, that's an affirmative action case there, right? You know, yeah. certainly as, as a white man, you probably don't have to, you don't have to verify your credentials right. in certain ways. That, that's that's a type of, of social privilege. And when we talk about white privilege, we're not talking about whether or not you worked hard. But we're talking about the way that the system actually offers you merits and the way it demerits, right? The, the, the way it, it, it closes off opportunities for black, brown, indigenous folk, Asian folks, simply because they are, are, are not white. So when we talk about this, we're not trying to deny the fact that white folk have had it hard. In the book, I actually say it very clear. White folk in this country have been oppressed just as long as black people have been oppressed. Let's not forget that the majority of Americans uh, and, and colonialists did not own slaves. In fact, they were exploited labor. Uh, and, and, and I think that is the point, is that when we can get white folk to realize that they do have privilege, but also to realize that they have been, uh, they have been uh, demerited in so many ways uh, that that most white people don't have four hundred dollars in savings if an emergency mm. comes up. We saw during the pandemic that we had these long food lines of of of, of white folk uh, be, because because of that. But that does not take away the the fact that black wages tend to be lower. There's a racial wealth gap that is large. There's 246 years of unpaid slave labor that this country has not uh, repaired yet. Uh, and so right. we are talking about, yes, you can be both privileged as a white person because of your whiteness, but also have uh, the kinds of, of, of oppressions related to economics, related to gender, related to sexuality uh, that we just have to take seriously. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, to, to me, it seems like, like on the one hand, you can argue that we all have the same access to certain things, but, but if, if, if I, I picture it like a ladder that's been handed to some folks with like the first six rungs missing, go, okay, we'll climb up, you know? So my, you know, in my particular case, you know, I, I, I'm not from a, not from a privileged background in the sense of socio socioeconomically, but I can tell you this, John and I, I, we've never experienced hunger. Not real. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I've been hungry, but I've never, I've never wondered where our next meal was coming from. I've never wondered if, if our, if, if we would have a house to live in, because we always did. We may not have had much, but we weren't poor. And so socioeconomically, we were, we were fine. We come from an, you know, uh, from a home that's, that's, that, you know, a mom and a dad that, that loved each other and were good to us and had access to education. Um, if we wanted to go to college, we could. There was very, very little that was off the table for us. And that in and of itself is a huge leg up in the world, 
right? I mean, that just just it just means I start off. You know, my my race didn't start at the starting line. It started you know 100, 100 meters down the road, versus somebody who had to to maybe overcome certain things before they even got there. And so that's that's and then for me as a white guy, the clearest. And, and it, this doesn't just apply to whiteness. This applies to issues of sexuality and gender and all kinds of other things. For me, the clearest example of this is I can choose tomorrow to not think about this. I can put it on the shelf and I'll pick it up another day when I talk to somebody else. My gay friends don't have that option. My black and brown friends don't have that option. This is something that is is literally with them every day, all day. And so so I, I don't I don't feel like I can be laissez-faire about this. I don't feel like I can just be sort of like, eh, I, I can't just be on the sideline. John and I both feel strongly that, that, that if we're not speaking out, then, then we're complicit. And so Absolutely, we feel like yeah. we need to, you know, at the very least, uh, be, be uh, providing platforms to folks like you who are saying stuff that needs to be said. So for that, we appreciate you coming, man. I was, uh, in a, I was uh, on a panel with a senior white pastor, uh, evangelical, and I was talking about white privilege. And he said, no, Willie. What you're referring to are white blessings. Oh my God. Uh, and, 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 you know, what he couldn't see was how he was a beneficiary, not just, not just racism is not just about the bad things that happen to non-white people. Right. It is also okay. about the good things that happen to white people or the bad things that don't happen uh, to, to white people. And like, this is about what you can't call it white blessings because I mean, we have to think about what is over policing mean? What is a punitive legal system that, that empties black households of wage earners mean? What do we do with the 246 years of unpaid slave labor? The 90 years of Jim Crow poverty and, 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 and wage theft? Like, you can't call these things white blessings to say God did this without talking about the way human structures right. have right. set right. it up, uh, in, 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 in a particular way. Not, not knowing what it feels like to walk in a grocery store and to be followed or to walk yeah. into a, a retail store and be followed to, uh, to, to, to not have, uh, your, your credentials question. Like these are privileges that I think the more we come to terms with, uh, and, and all of us have privilege in, in some ways. I know that I am a beneficiary. Uh, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I know I'm a beneficiary of class privilege, of, of male privilege, of sexuality privilege, of citizenship privilege. I understand that alongside the deep privilege associated with my race, I also have other layers of privilege because I'm a man, because I am a heterosexual, uh, because I am an American citizen, uh, because I am, you know, a middle to upper middle class, you know, these, these realities impact how my black shows up in the world too. But it requires me, what I talk about in the book is having a syncopated identity to be able to see how all of my various identities work together. Well, and uh, back to what you were saying earlier now, that was uh, Lisa Sharon Harper. But the the other thing that she, that she brought up was this myth of whiteness has separated white people from their past. And I think, and that, you know, you know, I'm kind of just trying to put it together. So we have, we have divorced ourselves from our, our cultures, the cultures that we came from, right? My brother and I are Irish. Uh, we, uh, but, uh, but whiteness overpowers that. I'm not, 
Irish, I'm white. And then that makes us want to tell people of color, well, why does it always have to be about race? Why can't you just be, why can't you just be American first? Mm. So we have, through hundreds of years of slavery, divorced people of color from their culture, their past. They are trying to reconnect with a culture that we have systematically removed them from and punished them for even trying to create or control or have some ability to have a connection to their culture. And then since we have decided we no longer care about our culture, whiteness is always more important than being Irish. Whiteness is going to always be more important than being English or whatever, wherever we came from. We then want you, people of color, to do the same. And we don't allow you to find your culture. We don't allow you to, and then, but then on top of that, what's well, some of the first questions white people ask black people as they, as they get to know that? Well, where are you from? Well, I'm from, I'm from New York. No, wh- where are your people from? It's like, I, I've never been asked that. I've never been asked where are my people from? Right. Right. right and so right, it's like, right. yeah, there's these, these microaggressions that happen that we just gloss over and it's like, so people of color are always on guard. And that's what we don't, that's what white people don't understand. They're always on guard for these type of little ridiculous little questions, things that are asked about them. How do you, how do you get your hair to do that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I would never walk up to a, a guy and like, Hey, how do you, how do you make your hair stand up straight like that? Right. Because it, it's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't matter to me. It's not something that's in my, my but I'll definitely, you know, not me, but I mean, people of, uh, white people will definitely go up to, you know, or can I touch your hair? Because it looks so cool, right? All these little microaggressions that, that are just constantly, so it puts people of color on guard all the time. And so I was, I was talking to a friend of mine at work the other day and I was trying to give him an example of what this means to be on guard. I was like, so you're driving down the road, you, are all drivers bad? No, they're not all drivers bad, but you drive like they are, right? Because maybe you've been hit by one. You've had a, you know, had a car accident. So you drive defensively. You drive as if the person next to you on the highway is a bad driver. That's what it's like to constantly always be around people who you have to make an assumption are potentially don't have your best interest at heart. And then we talk about We'll just get over it. And it's like, we, we, we hear things like generational curses, right? But I think generational trauma is like a realistic, absolutely something is, that's anyone who, anyone who says that that's not real doesn't understand. So like health issues with people of color, right? Generational trauma, we've seen, right? Medically that trauma can actually change people's genetics. Like Nat was saying, I mean, it's, it's important for people like us to speak out when we see these moments, right? Yeah, I agree. No, I, I mean, I think that that, that is so appropriate, uh, particularly to to your point about the microaggressions. I, I spent right. some time in the book adapting yeah. a chart of, you know, like, what yeah. are some microaggressions? What are the major classes of microaggressions? How do they show up? And like, what do they mean theologically? What am I actually saying spiritually when I'm practicing right. microaggressions? Uh, because at some point, and I think this is important because just because a thought is private doesn't mean I'm unaccountable to it or I shouldn't be accountable right. for it, right? Just because I had a thought to grab my purse uh, or roll up my window when black youth yep. pass by or a Latinx uh, youth passes by 
you know, just because it happened up here doesn't mean that they didn't feel the offense or, or feel the hurt because there's nothing minor or micro or small about right. microaggressions, right? They, they, right? they are painful. They, they, they are, they are dangerous. Uh, but in this book, I also offer some ways that we can respond to them, how we can co- correct them in, in the moment because we do get those questions of, oh, how do you get your hair to do that? Do that touching people's hair, right. uh, question. I mean, e- even, White families being sat down first uh, mm. at a restaurant, being seated first at a, at a restaurant. You know, somebody uh, saying, oh, you are so articulate. You know, oh, wow. what, what, why does that surprise you that I know how to put sentences together? Mm. I think I think, like, these are the ways uh, the individual ways that we extend the life of, of racism and we don't think we're doing it. Like those are the, like most microaggressions are really unconscious. We don't know where the, this is why I try to say in, in, in the book is that actually saying, being able to say that I am racist does not mean I'm a bad person. What right. it means is I have not figured out how to undo what the world has taught me about beauty, about creativity, about power, about dignity, about justice. You can be a good person and a racist. It's possible. Uh, mm. I know people who are loving, uh, but they actually do. They are afraid of black youth because they are black youth. Right? That does not mean you're a horrible person. It means there's some work that you have to do. All I, white people are not inherently racist. It is something we inherit. All of us inherit it, and we have to do the work of deprogram, divesting of those things in us that tell us who's valuable, who's feared, who's lovable, uh, who's deserving, uh, who is, who is in, who's out. We have to consciously do that work. And it's hard to do that when you can only say, oh, I don't want to be a racist because I don't want people to think badly about me. It's not about people thinking badly about you. This is about how do we co-create a community, a society where we can coexist. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, and the worst thing we can do. And, and I, one of the things that has bothered me so much is, is, is people like me who maybe have a pulpit and have a church or whatever, our unwillingness to talk about this stuff openly just leads to a culture where we think, and I think we're just, I think we're on some level, we're just convinced if we just pretend it doesn't exist, it might not actually exist. Um, and one of the conversations that my friend and I had just this weekend was, a family of theirs, you know, a family friend of his, they're having this discussion and they're just convinced there's no such thing as racism because they haven't seen it. Yeah. And so yeah. because it has not affected them directly because they live in some kind of insulated little bubble where somehow they either don't see it or maybe it doesn't exist in their circle of four friends, um, that then they project that onto the world and say, well, then we're making something out of nothing. There's, there's nothing to see here. Um, and so until we can see, you know, past that and, and actually start to, to, to give value to other people's experiences. Um, I think we're going to miss it. And that's what, so I would, you know, I would challenge anybody who's listening. If you're part of a church, if you're, maybe you're even the pastor of a church or whatever, um, man, these are, these are conversations that need to happen. I think, I think they need to happen, especially inside of the church. And I, I really wish the church would stop shying away from this. Um, because if there's ever a place where, where we should be able to transcend some of this stuff, I would think the church is best equipped, at least, at least uh, ideally, right? I don't think in in practice we've ever done that, but to our detriment, you know, and to our to our discredit, we haven't. 
Man, I, I, I tell you what, I, and actually, as we're talking right now, I'm considering, I think, we'll, I, think, I think we may just talk about this book in church here shortly. I think we need to have a, a little small group study about it because um, I'm, I'm just more and more convinced that, that the, more we, the more we talk about this, that the more people like John and I bring it, bring it in. You know, it's like, like listen, we, these, these are not topics we can ignore just because we don't feel like they affect us. But they affect the body, man. And as I and if I if I if I stop to see that we're all interconnected, and I stop and I only see you know that that's why the hyper individual hyper individualism stuff is so dangerous to me. And to see that the church has moved so far into that, and they've sort of applied that to everything, this interdependence that I think that we all have is lost because now it's all just my individual, my personal choices for my, and it it, it just can't happen that way. So. I really, really appreciate the book. I appreciate the work. Um, yeah. More than that, I just appreciate the way you've you've put it all together, man. It's just, it's, it. I didn't. John said he saw an Amazon re- review that said it was a tough read. I don't think it's a tough read at all, man. <laughs> so maybe somebody read it and was challenged, but um, I, I, I think it's really well written. It's really well put together. I think the uh, the concepts are 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 put out in such a way that I think I think they just demand attention. So I, I love that, man. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited <clears throat> about what it will do in the world and how it will make our, our churches look more like Jesus, how it, will yeah. make our, how it will make our democracy stronger and make our, our relationships uh, more, more, more meaningful. So, you know, August 16th, uh, 2022 is, is when it re- enters into the world. And I'm just excited about, about how it will help to make us uh, better followers of Jesus. Hey, yeah. Amen, man, guys. August sixteenth. That's not far, so we'll uh, we'll make sure that this is out by then, or probably try to coordinate that to come out when yeah. your book drops. But um, man, get out, get it, buy it, send it up to number one, man. It, it deserves it. So yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate. Yeah. That. All yeah, right. We really th- thank you for coming on. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for having. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.